It is, uh, it is really, really, really good to be here with you. Um, as that picture came up in someone's time hop, it got passed around in a group text to the five couples, and Jess and I were in on that text. And it brought back so many great memories about our time here at Connect. And um, one thing that I texted back to the group, and, and this is just a testimony of how awesome Connect Church is and how awesome Dave and Casey's leadership has been. You know, as a former pastor myself, and as somebody who has studied church, new churches like this over the course of years, um, it is really rare for the original group to stay together for multiple years. It really is. I mean, I don't know if you guys realize that, but you really have a good thing going here. You've got great pastors in Dave and Casey. I'm, I'm from the bottom of my heart, these are two of my favorite people on the planet. Jess and I both feel that way about them. We absolutely adore your pastors, um, and, uh, and, and we're just so honored to be here. As he said, we've moved away to Nebraska. We do have family here. We spent a lot of time living right here in the Washington area, and this is still home for us in many ways. We have so many good friends in this room. I can't see any of their faces right now. I just see silhouettes, but I see, I know you're here because I saw you in the hallway beforehand, and, and we, we're just, you know, we're so honored to have been a part of this journey for these past, you know, since uh, I think it's three years ago now when we first started uh, kind of having those conversations and stuff. So, so it, truly an honor for us to be here. We live 470 miles away from here now, according to Google Maps. But we still feel very much a part of Connect. We still pray for you often. We still watch your services online. We still uh, talk to Dave and Casey and other people here from time to time and just kind of see what's going on and celebrate with you. And so I, I can't express how deeply um, you know, moved I am by the opportunities I've had. This is my second time speaking here. I, I was able to speak. Dave, Dave was out of town um, the Sunday after Thanksgiving last year, 2014. And so he, he called me then and he asked me to speak. And so when he texted me this week, and he said, or a couple weeks ago, and he said, hey, Andy, are you going to be around at Christmas time? I said, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, would you mind speaking? And I said, sure. Do you have any topic you want me to cover? Do you have any um, series you're finishing up that you would like for me to touch on? And um, he texted back and said, now just whatever God shows you to, to share. And then he texted back a few minutes later, and he said, why don't you preach the same message you shared the last time you were here and see if anyone notices? <laughs> and... Uh, so, full disclosure, yeah, this may or may not be the same message I preached because, uh, you know, I might just be really lazy and didn't have anything new to say. No, but ironically, I didn't talk with Justin about what I was going to be talking about. I think it's a pretty standard sort of, um, but, but Justin was up here a few minutes ago and he basically preached my message for this morning. So you're all dismissed. Thank you for coming today. <laughs> no, I, I do want to expand a little bit if that's okay, Justin, because uh, I feel like the Lord gave me some thoughts about how we can kind of make this um, kind of our, our approach to going forward in this new year. Um, this week we transitioned. I don't know about you, but when I look at the calendar year, the whole year leads up to Christmas, right? I mean, it is the climax. It is the big, you know, moment. It's a big celebration. There's the presents. There's the food. There's the fun. There's the activities. There's all kinds of things going on. And when we get to Christmas time, then we start to transition into what? Winter and the new year, right? And in my mind, this week that we're in right now, between Christmas and New Year's, is this incredibly strange time of year for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, have you ever transitioned so quickly from a glutton to a gym rat as you do this time of year? Is anyone else like that with me? A few days ago, I'm stuffing my face full of 
candy, and I'll probably continue to do that. But then, you know, and then you're trying on the new Fitbit, and you're finding the new running shoes and things like that. So it's, it's an interesting time of year. We're starting to transition from what we were into what we want to be, right? We're starting to reflect on where we've been over the past 365 days. And we're starting to figure out, what do I want to be? Where do I want to be? What do I want my life to look like, my finances to look like, my family to look like, my marriage to look like, my physical specimen, my physical being? What do I want that to look like a year from now? And so this is a time of reflection, and it's a time of trying to figure out where we want to be in, uh, you know, in, in another year from now. And so we start making these... Uh, New Year's resolutions like Dave's where, you know, you want to lose a few pounds and many of us, did anyone succeed with your, just let me see your hands, I can kind of see hands a little bit. Raise your hand if you hit your goal on the New Year's resolutions. Let me see, I'm not seeing any hands at all. What's going on, people? We've got a couple of them. All right, you know, you set a goal to lose a few pounds, to pay off some debt, to stop smoking, to stop watching so much Netflix because your binge watching is getting out of control. Whatever it is, that's mine right, now, right there, full disclosure. Um, but we set these goals and we kind of come up with these ideas and these promises that often we break, promises we make to ourselves that we often break. We often come up short on them, but we're making them. And, and, and listen, I'm not here today to come in here and give you a high five for completing your goals. That's not my mission. I'm not here to say, good job, you're awesome, congratulations. I'm not here to say, you stink, you should feel bad about yourself if you failed because I failed worse than all of you. Um, Dave only has 15 pounds to lose. I got 20 to lose, and I had the same goal as him. Um, four days to go. And, uh, and, and I'm certainly not here. I am not a motivational speaker at all. You know, I am not that guy. I'm not up here to try to pump you up and give you the rah-rah talk where you can do it, you can believe in yourself, and here are 10 steps that if you apply these to your life, you'll be a better you than you were last year. You know, that's not at all who I am. That's not what I do. What I'm here to do today is I want to talk to you about one thing. I'm a very simple guy. I, I, it, for me, I like to, to strip things down to its simplest form. I want to talk to you. My message this morning is entitled, One Thing. And I believe that no matter where you're at in life, no matter what challenges you face, no matter where your family is at, no matter where your finances are, no matter what goals you have in 2016, I believe that there is one universal thing that I can talk to you about this morning that will, make, that will have the greatest impact on your life, every single area of your life in the upcoming year. You see, a lot of times what we do is we set these goals, and we set them for our physical being. We set them for our finances. We set them for our emotional state or our whatever, our mental state, or we set them for our family or whatever. But a lot of times what we do is we neglect to set goals for our spiritual growth and our development there. Or if we do, they kind of become secondary. Now, here's something I want to say, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time to establish this. I'm just going to go forward assuming you all agree with me on this. <laughs> but we are spiritual beings. And as spiritual beings, the core of who we are, my identity is spiritual. Everything about me flows from this, my spiritual identity. And so who I am on that level is, is, it, it, you know, has impact on every other area of my life. I had never set goals for my spiritual you know, growth or development before at any point in my past. But when I was in college, I attended a Christian college in Minnesota 
And at this college, we had chapel speakers come in, and they would talk to us about different things. And one time during around this time of year, somebody came in and talked to us about setting spiritual goals for the upcoming year. And again, I'd never done this. I'd never even thought about setting a spiritual goal. I'd never thought about, you know, the spiritual development and all of this sort of thing. And so this was kind of a new concept to me. And so I started thinking, okay, I'm going to do this. What does that look like? How am I going to grow spiritually this year? And so I did a few things over the course of the next few years, some goals that I set And uh, so one year, I had always been, I wanted to grow in my generosity. I feel like generosity is a reflection of the heart of God in my life. And so I wanted to grow in my generosity. I had always been a percentage giver, giving a percentage of my income to God's work, to the church. And I decided that that particular year that I was going to give 1% more than I had been giving to grow in my generosity, to grow in my faith, to grow in my trust of God. And so I did it, and over the course of the year, I felt really good about myself because it was one of the last resolutions that I ever lived up to, you know? (laughs) There was another year where I decided I wanted to read through the Bible in a year because I grew up in a church that emphasized reading the Scriptures, reading the Bible for yourself, learning what God has to say about who He is and all of that. And so so I made it a goal that I was going to go ahead and I was going to buy one of those little sheets of paper that you buy at the Christian bookstore and put it in my Bible, and it gives you a day-by-day plan. January 1st, read these three chapters, and January 2nd, read these four or whatever it is. And I went through that, and I'll tell you what, at the end of the year, I had read through the entire Bible. Now, here's the catch. Some days I didn't read anything, and then other days I had to read 10, 12, 15 chapters to catch up. You know what I mean? But the point for me at that time in my life was that I felt like reading the Bible was the end-all, be-all. Like, okay, so if I do this, then that equals spiritual growth. There was another year where I decided I was going to try to stop sinning for the entire year. Just thought if I took one day at a time, one hour at a time, and focused on that, I might get through. I didn't make it through the first day. Didn't make it through the first day. It was a failed experiment from the, from the outset. But when we set these New Year's resolutions, when we're looking at our lives and reflecting on where we've been and where we're going, there's two parts to a resolution that I kind of want to break down and kind of look at them from different sides today. First of all, there's the vision. A a New Year's resolution consists of a vision. The vision shows what could be. You know, it shows what what do I see? Where could I go? And so a New Year's resolution always starts by answering that question. What do I see for my life in a year? The other part is the decision. The decision is to make the steps that will get me where I need to go. So there's the vision that shows me where I want to go and the decision that equals the steps that get me there. Okay? And so a New Year's resolution consists of these two parts, but it always starts with the vision. And so I want to I pose this to you. Justin asked you a little bit ago this, this same question. What do you see for your life in 2016? What do you see for your life? You know, as far as, as, far as your, your, your goals and as far as what you want to be, when people look at you and they look at your life, what do you want them to see inside of you? And this can be, you know, your financial goals. This can be your goals for your family. It can be your goals for whatever. What are those goals that you have? When we talk about the spiritual development side of things, what I want to do this morning is I want to read to you a scripture. Throughout the, throughout the Bible, there are cases where one of the Bible writers will talk about what a life lived in Christ should look like, okay? And, and, and Peter does it in one of his letters that he writes to the church, and Paul does it in his letters. And ever so often, there are these 
these, it's like painting the perfect picture. This is the ideal. This is what this should look like if you're walking in Christ, if you're living a, a relationship with Christ. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. If you have a Bible, if not, it, it, it's going to be on the screen behind me here. Peter writes this. He says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us a great and precious promises. These are the promises, get this, that enable you to, to share in the divine nature. That's what we want, right? To share in his nature, the spiritual nature of God. And at the same time, to escape the, what, how does it put it? The, the world's corruption caused by human desires. Does anyone here have corruption in, inside of you and human desires that are contrary to God? I do. My hand is higher than anyone else's. And he goes on and he says, in view of all of this, he says, make every effort to respond to God's promises. And here's where he paints the picture of what a life in Christ looks like. He says, supplement faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Then he tags all of that by saying this. He says, the more you grow like this, the more you become this ideal, the more productive and the more useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I don't, I don't know about you, but I read these pictures of what a life in Christ is supposed to look like, and there are two reactions that I have. Sometimes I feel like, yes. You know, that's what I want to be. I want to be more knowledgeable. I want to be more godly. I want to have patient endurance. I want to be more morally excellent, you know? And then there are other times where I look at it and I just hang my head in shame because I know I'm not there. Can you relate to that? And what Peter is doing here is he's painting this picture. This is what life in Christ looks like. This is what you are growing into. This is who you are because remember what he said at the beginning. He said, at the, at the very beginning of all that, he said, by his divine power, God has already given us everything we need for a godly life. He has already given us the ability to be this. And then he says, make every effort, one translation says, to apply these things. So I'm going to go out on a limb this morning, and I'm going to guess that every person in this room would, like, would say that, yes, I want to be those things. I want to be more morally excellent. I want to be more godly. I want to be more compassionate and more kind and more wise in the knowledge of God and, and understanding. I, that's what I want. You know, it's like nobody ever says, you know what, 2016, I think I want to be a super, super impatient with my kids, right? Nobody sets that for a goal. Nobody ever says, you know what, I, I really, I'm going to try to be less moral this year than I was last year, you know? We don't set those kind of goals. We set goals for growth. We set, and so I'm going out on a limb, and I'm believing that, that, that you're on the same page with me there. So if that's what you want, and if that's the ideal, then how do we get there? How do we grow into that? How do we get to know, or how do we get to that point where, where um, we've taken the steps or the actions to get to where we need to, do, to be, you know, as we look more and more like that picture of a godly person? Here's what happens a lot of times. 
you and I read this list and it says, be more godly. And what do we do? We think, oh, okay, to be more godly, I have to do godly things. What are godly things? Uh, I don't know, going to church. Going to church is a good thing. I'm gonna go to church more. I missed a lot this past year. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to connect every Sunday. I'm gonna volunteer on the setup and teardown crew, both crews. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna volunteer on the children's ministry. You know, I'm gonna, you know, and, and so we set these goals and we think, yeah, I'm, this, is, this is what would make me more godly. And we decide we want to be more morally excellent. And so we say, how do I become morally excellent? Oh, let's see. I could probably become more morally excellent, better in that area. It's hard to say. More morally excellent. Too many mores for me. More morally excellent. I could probably get there if I quit watching rated R movies, you know, because those are planting bad thoughts in my mind and seeds of, you know, things that shouldn't be there. So I'm going to cut that out. So I'm doing a good thing there. Okay, check. And then you read about genuine love for everyone, and, and you set a goal, and you say, you know what, How can, what, what's something I can do that will build genu- genuine love in my life? Let's see. I know. I'll do random acts of kindness for people. I'll just go and rake people's yards and, you know, go serve at the food kitchen and, you know, and help out at the shelter and serve at the church. And I'll do things that show people my love for them. And then one day after you served at the rescue mission, you're driving home and some jerk cuts you off and then, you know, makes you slam on your brakes and you get mad. This is me. I'm describing me right now. And you get mad and you pull up alongside him and you give him the one finger salute. You know what I mean? And, and, <laughs> and uh, he, and you have a few words with this guy, and, and then as you're driving off later, you're thinking to yourself, well, genuine love for everybody but that guy, you know, because <laughs> he had that coming. That guy was kind of a jerk, you know, and, but here's what happens when we set these, these, this, when we take this description and we think, in order to be godly, I need to do godly things. What happens is sometimes I do those godly things, and guess what? I get puffed up, and I get proud, because all of a sudden, I look more like God because of all the things I'm doing for God. Or other times, we fail, and we hang our heads in shame. And we're pushing our grocery cart in Kroger one day, and you see Dave Jane at the end of the aisle, and he doesn't see you yet, so you duck and go around because, you know, you're ashamed to be around the man of God, you know what I mean? <laughs> but this kind of action always ends in either me feeling proud or me feeling ashamed. And can I ask you, are either of those things godly? Is pride a godly virtue? No. Is shame a godly virtue? Heck no. Neither of those things are anywhere in any of these descriptions in any of the chapters of the Bible that talks about what a godly Christian Christ follower life should look like. None of those things are there. And so what we do is we take this, this description and we turn it into a to-do list. And we, and we seriously think to ourselves, in order to be godly, I must do godly things. But I want to tell you this morning, loud and clear, that has never been the way that God makes us godly. Do you, do you follow me on that? God does not make us more like him through us doing things that are, you know, good or whatever. That is not... Here's the difference. It's like getting the cart before the horse, right? Sometimes we get the cart before the horse, and we think that godly things make us godlier. But that's not at all how it works. Here's what happens. God changes our hearts, and he changes us from the inside out, 
And then out from that flows these kinds of actions. Godliness, moral excellence, um, self-control, brotherly love, affection for everyone. You know what I mean? It's a complete different way of arriving at the end goal. Sometimes we think we've got to take it on ourselves and, and we've got to make it happen. One of the other writers in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, was talking about a very similar subject in Philippians chapter 3. And I want you to hear this. This is kind of neat. Paul, if anyone in the whole Bible time had any reason to feel puffed up and proud about how much he had done for God and how much he had earned God's favor, Paul was that guy. Because Paul, he goes through, in Philippians 3, the first few chat verses, he lists his accomplishments. He says, I was a Pharisee. And, it, and everyone back then knew what a Pharisee was. Pharisees memorized the scriptures. They had, you know, the whole Torah memorized. You know, they were, they were zealous in their, in their um, translation and in their application of God's word. They were strict adherers of God's word. You know, he, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is a, a, a big deal among that culture. among the, He says, I was a pure-blood Jew. You know, he says, in all these things, and he says, if anyone has reason to boast about what they have done for God, it's me. If anyone has reason to say, I should be at the top of the mountain because of the, all the stuff that you can do for God, I'm the person. But then he says in verse 7, and follow along with me on this, he says, I once thought that these things were valuable. All these things that I've done for God, I, I once thought they meant something. I once thought they counted as, as really important in my growth to be more like God. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with, get this, everything else is worthless compared with the infinite value. Think about that. Don't go, it can be so easy to blaze right through this. The infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of this stuff is crazy worthless. It's garbage compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ, Je Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And then skip down to verse 10. He says, I want, this is the cry of his heart. Now keep in mind, uh, let me just give you a little background briefly. Paul had gone through this religious experience where he was a religious zealot without Jesus, meaning like he was crazy intense in his, um, his pursuit of God for the first several years of his life. Then he had an encounter with Jesus, and he writes this letter to the church in the, in the city of Philippi in Greece about 30 years later after his conversion. So this is a man who has really seen some things. And if you know Paul's story, God used him to raise the dead. God used him to do all kinds of miracles. There was a time where he was speaking and a, and a snake jumped up on him and bit him and he shook it off into the fire and everyone thought he was going to fall over dead and he didn't. They thought he was a God, but it was just the power of God in him. I mean, Paul was crazy cool like that. You know, he had so much God stuff going on in his life. And he says here in verse 10, he says, he says, this is the cry of my heart. This is my resolution. This is my hope. He says, all I want, I want to know Christ and experience the, the, the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And then in verse 13, he's, I'm skipping down a few verses. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not already achieved this. I'm not already there. I'm not already perfect. But he says, I focus on this one thing. 
He says, all of my accomplishments, which I thought were such a big deal, are not a big deal. He says, the only thing that I want in life is to know Jesus. That's it. All I want is to know him, to grow closer to him. All I want is intimacy with my Savior. You see, we kind of glossed over this again in, in the scripture we read from 2 Peter. If we can go back to, or go to 2 Peter verse 3. Peter wrote this. He said, by his divine power, he has already, God has already given us everything for living a godly life. And then the underlined part there. We have received all of this by coming to know him. We have received all of the ability to live a godly life through knowing him. Now the word, I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't pretend to be, but I do a little research and I have Google and stuff so I can figure this stuff out. Um, but the Greek word for knowing him here is the Greek word epignosis. Epignosis. And the, the understanding of what that word means is it's, it's a full discernment. It's a full understanding, um, a full knowledge, and the tense of the word, if you're an English student at all, the tense is present perfect, meaning it is now and continuing on indefinitely. So the word is, as I, we have received all of this, not just when I came to know him when I was five years old and I prayed the sinner's prayer on my dad's you know, lap and, and he told me about Jesus, not just that day, but every day as I know Christ, as I progressively grow in my depth of knowledge of him, as I progressively come closer to him, as I live in a place of intimacy with my God, that's where the ability to live a godly life comes from. So the key, it's kind of like a door. Imagine a door, you know, right over there is a door, and behind it you're assured is some kind of crazy treasure. You don't know what it is, but you know it's going to be worth it if you can get onto the other side. And you can't break the door down or whatever. And all you've got is a key. The key is the one thing that will get you to the other side where that great treasure is. And in the scriptures, there are often these keys. You want to live a godly life? That's the treasure. You want to be a godly man? You're a godly husband, a godly wife? You want to be a godly teenager in a world that is not godly at all? The key is to know Jesus. Growing progressively in your knowledge of Jesus. I want to I compare here as we're getting ready to close here in a minute. I want to compare for you. I want to make this, I want to bring this close with a story that many of you know from the Bible. Some of you will be familiar with it. Others of you may not. I'm going to try to give you a little background. Two sisters, Mary and Martha. These two sisters became very fond of Jesus. They were some of his, um, you know, best followers during his earthly ministry, and Jesus, one day in Luke chapter 10, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to their home. Now, coming into someone's home was a big deal. It was fellowship. It was intimacy. It was all this stuff. But there were two different reactions from these two sisters. One of the sisters came into the room where Jesus was sitting, and he was probably talking. There's no detail, really, about what he says. But Jesus is sharing, and he's talking about God, and he's talking about, you know, things and, and the one sister, Mary, is in the room, and she is just soaking it all in. She's listening to everything he says. She's, she's learning from him. And the other sister, Martha, is a little busybody in the other room, right? She's in the other room, and she knows that Jesus, uh, th that there's a meal to prepare. So she's in the other room, and she's preparing the meal. And she's, she's you know, I, I don't know if any of you husbands, I don't know if any of you, anyone in this room is like this. 
But I'll come home from work sometimes, and Jess gets home a couple hours before me, and I don't always know what she does in the couple hours before I get there. I'm sure, but I know she does a lot. She's crazy busy with our kids, and, and you know, we have five kids, and it's just a crazy life and whatever. So she's busy doing her thing, and then finally at about five o'clock, she sits down on the couch, and she relaxes and turns on the news. Not very often, but occasionally she'll do that. I walk in, <laughs> and I see the kitchen is a disaster, and I go in there, and I, I get home from work, and I'm like, and she's already been doing so much. I give her that credit, but I don't know that. I'm not coming in. I'm grumpy because I was just at work, you know? And I come in, and I, what do you do in that case? I go in, and I start cleaning the kitchen, but I don't just clean the kitchen. I make sure everyone in the house knows I'm cleaning the kitchen, right? I'm banging the pans down way too loud. Like, I just washed this one. If somebody else would have washed it, I wouldn't have to. And then I'm shutting the cupboard door, and then it pops, and everyone knows that I'm shutting cupboard doors in the whole house. And the house is shaking and everything. It's wonderful. Um, But I imagine Mary sitting in that room with Jesus and Martha in the other room, letting everyone know she's doing all the work. You know, she's preparing the meal. She's the one who's doing all this stuff for Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there ignoring it. Everyone in the house is. Finally, when the banging of the cupboards and the pots and pans doesn't work and get the the, the result that she was hoping for, Martha stomps into the room and says, Jesus, don't you see what's going on here? Mary, Martha, what are you talking about? I'm in there doing all the work, preparing your meal, and my sister is in here just hanging out with you. Won't you tell her to come and help me? And Jesus' response is so good. His response is so good. He doesn't rebuke Martha for any kind of attitude. You know, I'm kind of reading between the lines there. I'm just imagining the the attitude there. But, But listen to his response to her. He says, my dear Martha... You are worried and upset over all these details, all these things that need to be done. They're just consuming you. They're they're chewing you up. They're making you frustrated and spiteful and whatever. You're just so consumed by them. But there is only one thing. There's that, that phrase again. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it. I love that he doesn't He doesn't say, this is what that one thing is necessarily. What that tells me is that it's a discovery for all of us. Does that make sense? Mary had discovered it. He doesn't say, Martha, this is what it is. If you do these things, because then it becomes a process again, right? And then it becomes a work and then, but it's like Mary has discovered it. And it's a challenge to Martha. Martha, your turn, you know? Come and discover it. What had Mary discovered? Mary had discovered intimacy that was unlike anything Martha had experienced at that point. You know, one of the things that I've realized in my, in my many, many years of gaining wisdom and intellect here on this earth, one of the things I've realized is that intimacy, when I'm intimate with somebody... I can be around them, and I can just be comfortable with whatever's going on. You know what I mean? When I'm close with somebody, I can just be in the same room as them. We don't have to be talking. We don't have to be, you know, but when I'm, when I'm not familiar with somebody, I get uncomfortable, and I get fidgety. When I get fidgety, I need something to do. 
So I'm going to look at a screen. Here's my phone. Or I'm going to, uh, so yeah, the weather, you know, <laughs> weather's been awesome, whatever. It's just weird and awkward. I'm not a good small talk person. So I always say something stupid and I'm like, oh shoot, that was dumb. They're going to remember me like that, you know. But when I'm close with somebody, I can just be in their presence and I can just enjoy whatever's going on. Whether, whether we're talking whether there's a board game going on, whether there's, you know, a, a football, whatever it is, I can just get in there and I can feel at home. I can feel at peace. I smile more. I'm relaxed. And I feel like sometimes for me, I'm not that way in the presence of God. I feel like there are times where I come into a, a service like this and I'm uncomfortable. And so I'm looking for things to do. I'm, I, you know, if I still attended Connect Church, I'd be one of the guys running around on Sundays being like, what needs to be done? What needs to be done? You know what I mean? Um, and that's great. God bless those guys because that is fantastic that we have people like that. But at the same time, when that becomes a crutch for me to lean on, rather than just being in the presence of God and worshiping with my church family, that's a problem. It's a problem. Because what we do does not lead to godliness. Godliness comes from knowing him. And if you want to know how comfortable, if you want to know how well you know him, just gauge how you feel in those moments where Justin is just strumming the guitar and there's no singing. Like, are you uncomfortable? Or are you like, just okay being in the presence of God? You want to know how to know somebody it's to be around them. It's such a simple message here this morning. This isn't rocket science at all. I'm here telling you the most basic, trivial, not trivial, because this is extremely important, the most basic, fundamental thing about growing in your relationship with God. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to challenge you in 2016 to change your perspective on everything you're doing for God. I'm going to challenge your perspective. I'm not going to challenge the action because the actions, the good things you're doing for God, the good things you're doing for the kingdom of God, those are valuable things. But I'm going to challenge your motivation. I'm going to challenge your perspective of why you're doing them. Instead of reading the Bible to check off a box and feel good about your accomplishment like I did when I was younger, read the Bible asking, Holy Spirit, show me where Jesus is in this. Because the Bible is the revelation of God to a, a generation of people who didn't get to walk on earth with Jesus, right? That's what the Bible is. It's our way of knowing him without seeing his, him eye to eye, face to face. And so read for that purpose. Instead of coming church to feel better about yourself and get your kids in church, instead of coming to church to be seen in a place where it's important to be seen, and as a result, you feel like God is happier with you because you're doing a good spiritual thing for him. Come to church with the goal in mind that you're, you're gathering together with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the purpose of knowing Jesus, spending time in his presence, enjoying being around your Savior and people who are going to encourage you in that direction. Instead of serving because you have an insatiable desire to please people, this is me, I told Jess, Sometimes I don't feel like I'm doing enough at our church in Nebraska. And she challenges that all the time. She says, why? I say, I don't know. And it always comes down to, I feel better about myself when I'm serving. 
That's so selfish, right? That is so selfish, you know? If I'm only serving because, oh, it makes me feel good about me being a good human being, and I know that other people are watching, and I want them to think I'm a good guy, and so I'm going to serve to, you know, if that's my motivation, I've missed it. But if I'm serving because it's the overflow of an experience of a relationship with God, that's life-changing. If you serve for the other reasons, you're going to get burned out. You're going to get spiteful. You're going to look at other people who aren't doing as much as you, and you're going to have an attitude. But if you keep your focus on Jesus, and, you're, you're, and this is an expression of my relationship with him, none of that matters. None of that matters. Here's the challenge to us today. What would your life look like in 2016 if you made your lone goal one thing? To know him. To progressively grow in the depths of your knowledge of Jesus this year over last year. It will change your life more dramatically than anything else. Any 10-step program, any exercise or diet, it will change your life and it will affect those other areas as well. Come talk to me about it next year. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your unending love for us. Thank you, God, for our, um, the ability that we have to walk in relationship with you because of what Jesus did for us. God, there's so much to do for the kingdom of God. There's so much stuff that we could do um, to, to help people and, and all of that. But, and Father, I pray that we would continue to do those things. But Lord, that those things would flow from a different place. I pray, God, that our goal in 2016 would be to know Jesus, to grow closer to Jesus, and let everything else fall in line behind that. We pray this all according to your, your will. In Jesus' name, amen.